<clears throat> so this evening I'm going to also talk about the parami of wisdom. Wisdom is such a huge topic, it seems like a good one to spend some time on. And as an int introduction to this, this parami, I want to say about the paramis in general that it's helpful to think of them as strengths and that we're developing personal inner strengths that can uh, be very useful <clears throat> as we go through our lives and as we practice. There's a strong tendency for people, meditators, Buddhists, to overvalue spiritual experiences. Like it's all about having a spiritual experience and come to retreat. And if you don't have a good spiritual experience, you have nothing to go home and brag about. You have to have a good experience. And, um, and I think you know, there's a place for experiences, but uh, I think they're often overvalued. And it's important to remember that one of the things we're doing is we're developing, maturing ourselves, we're developing ourselves, and developing something that's more enduring than an experience, and developing inner strengths. Uh, those strengths, they can endure longer than an experience, which might last a minute or an hour or a day or something. But uh, in inner strength, something you can come back to and use over and over again. So an analogy that I like is that of um, someone who's <clears throat> going to row across a big lake, maybe for a picnic on the other side. And they set out in the rowboat. <clears throat> and the wind picks up, and it gets stronger and stronger, and the wind blows against them, and the waves blow against them, and the currents go against them, and they're rowing, it's really hard work to row, and they're rowing really hard, and the wind gets stronger and stronger, gale wind, and they're rowing really hard. And then finally, uh, it seems like it's blowing so hard against them that they're never gonna get across, they give up and go back. Too bad. The next day, someone else gets in a rowboat, to walk to to row across the lake, to get to have a picnic. And that day, it's completely calm. It's a ni nice breeze actually, but it's blowing the boat with the boat, and the currents are with the boat today, and the little waves are lapping the boat gently across. And the person dips their oars into the water, and just a very light little touch, and the boat just sails across. And the person congratulates him or herself, wow, I'm a good rower. Wow, this is good. I'm really competent. And just about sails across, and you get to the side and you have your nice picnic. So the question for you is which of the two rowers became stronger? The one who succeeded in getting across or the one who didn't? <clears throat> and the answer is the one who didn't, because they were the one who had to really struggle and try. And so in terms of being able to uh, row in the future, the one who actually didn't succeed, succeeded the most for the long term. So to measure your retreat by your experiences might, is, is one criteria. The other criteria is, have you developed greater patience or greater equanimity, a greater capacity for honesty, greater capacity for um, stability, being stable, being calm, so there's inner strengths that are being developed. And so the paramis are all those. And one of those is wisdom. <clears throat> and perhaps the, translated as prajna is wisdom, 
uh, doesn't really give the full flavor or picture of the word, or the concept of what's being developed. Because perhaps wisdom can be understood as some understanding that you're going to carry with you. Now I, now I understand something I didn't understand before, and I'll carry that understanding and apply it in my life. There's something much more intimate and immediate about prajna, prajna that has to do with insight, seeing clearly something here and now. So sometimes it's translated as insight, to really see deeply into this reality here. Another translation that has been used <clears throat> for wisdom is discernment, to be discerning. And to be discerning is to be able to make distinctions, to be able to see differences between things. And wisdom is partly the ability to see what is it that makes a difference in our life? What is consequential? What is helpful and what is not helpful to do, to pick up, to be engaged in, both in the macro level and the micro level? What is helpful and what is not? Uh, what is um, um, uh, you know, beneficial for you or for others and what is not? Uh, what um, puts you on the path and what takes you off the path? And to really be able to have the wisdom to know, oh, this is the path. I found the path, the path to walk on. And this is not the path. It's a very important function of wisdom to have that ability to see that, to, under, to see, not just understand how it works, but to see it in our experience. And the path is, the word path, historically has often been used to define or describe what Buddhism is. And the word religion is a modern, somewhat, at least it's a kind of Western world word, that in ancient India, and until recently in India and in much of Asia, there was no corresponding word to translate the English word or the English or European word religion. And so people in Asia had to make up words. Like in Japan, they made up a word uh, just so they could translate religion into Japanese. And, um, and the, the, the closest word to it that describes Buddhism in India, ancient India is that it's a magga, it's a marga, it's a path. It's more than a religion, it's a path, it's a way. So the Buddha gave this beautiful story, analogy, of a woodsman, <clears throat> maybe someone who's close to nature, who one day out in the woods, in the jungle perhaps, overgrown bush and trees, finds the faint traces of an ancient road, overgrown. And so, uh, the woodsman follows those faint traces deeper and deeper into the forest. And deep in the forest finds an ancient capital, long abandoned, overgrown, long forgotten. The woodsman comes out of the woods and goes and finds the king and queen of the queendom and says, I found this ancient path that takes to this ancient capital, beautiful place. And so the king and queen go and clear the path, and clear the path, and clear it all the way to this big, beautiful capital, and clear the capital, and there's this beautiful, shiny city again. In this analogy, as it, Buddha explains it, uh, he's the woodsman who has found the faint traces of a path. 
and you are the kings and queens in this analogy. You're the royalty. Isn't that great? That, that's how you're being understood. That's how you're being seen, respected, acknowledged. Somehow, that, this analogy, you're the king and queen. And your humble servant has found these faint traces and, and it's for you to clear the path into the great ancient capital or ancient home, your home, to come home. One of the interesting things about this story, or this analogy, is the Buddha found the, paint, the path, the, the traces of the path, once he was awakened. It involved, his awakened vision was to find and see the path. And I think many people are very curious, you know, what, once, you're, once, once I'm going to be fully awakened, enlightened, how am I going to see the world? Oh, those awakened people, I'm sure they live in constant bliss. Everything is just white light. Just everything is just, you know, honey and sugar. I don't know what people think. <laughs> but uh, it's, whatever it is, it's going to be like a happy ever after kind of story. And what, one of, one of the defining characteristics, or what's, what the Buddha sees, the defining thing that a Buddha sees, an awakened person sees, is they see the path. The path to walk. They see what is the path and what isn't the path. And initially it's very faint. You can't see it very well. Maybe we lose it for a while and come back. But we find the path. So what is the path? And um, one of the classic descriptions of the path is the Eightfold Path. So and the Eightfold Path begins with wisdom, begins with the wisdom of knowing what is the path. So the right view, which is the first step of the Eightfold Path, is that insight or that view or that orientation that allows you to find the path. It's like the map. If you want to find the path, this is where you find it. And it's helpful to have a little bit of a sense of where the terrain is, where the map is, because the jungle is so huge. And there's so many things to do in the jungle, so many different paths you can take. It's nice to have a, kind of a direct path. And so, uh, in, so the right view the Buddha offered as being kind of the, perhaps the most direct path is the Four Noble Truths. Definition of the Eightfold Path the classic definition of the first step of the Eightfold Path is the orientation, the frame of reference, where we see our experience from the point of view of suffering, its origination, its cessation, and the path leading to it. This is um, the surprising news, that, so, that an awakened person sees suffering. I thought that was about the, you know, supposed to be the end of it. We, we say in English, the Four Noble Truths. The Pali word, Aryasacha, translated as Noble Truth, it's a little bit ambivalent or multivalent how, it's how it can be translated. It can be translated Noble Truths, 
But there's another way of translating it, which is the preferred way of much of the history of Theravadan Buddhism. The grammar allows for as well, both, both are allowed. And the preferred way is it's the truth of the noble ones. So rather than the truth being noble, it's that insight, that understanding, that wisdom that a noble one, an awakened one has. An awakened one is one who's able to see suffering. He's able to see the rising of suffering, the origination of it, and the cessation of it. There's something very profound about being able to see this. So it's a little bit surprising to to put it in a crude way. Someone was once asked, what did you see when you became awakened? And she said, I saw how much of an egomaniac I am. (laughs) What do you think of that? There's something about the clarity of awakening that allows us to see, if the awakening is not complete, it allows us to see and highlight what's going on in the functioning of our hearts and mind. And one of the things that the awakened person sees is they see, oh, here's my suffering. Here is the grasping and clinging from which it arises. And here's its cessation. There's something very maturing, very strengthening, to be very honest about our real humanity, human condition, how we actually are. I think oftentimes in spiritual life, people sometimes have blinders on half of who they are. They don't want to look at their full self. They don't want to look at that part that suffers. Or there are people who have blinders on, they only want to look at what they suffer, where they suffer. The Four Noble Truths <clears throat> encompasses both sides. It sees, the, sees suffering. It doesn't say, the, the Pali of the Four Noble Truths does not say the cause of suffering. In shorthand, we say that in English. It says, the word is samudaya. Some means together, and udaya means to arise. Co-arising, that which arises together. It's the origination. It's that which arises with suffering. It's the condition which has to be there for us in order for suffering to be there. And the reason why it's maybe not good to call it a cause is then we start kind of digging into the past, as if the past will tell us. And the immediacy of the insights of the Four Noble Truths is to see the conditions here and now that arise with it. Without that condition, the suffering won't happen. And to see it, the noble one, the awakened insight, is to see, the, see suffering, see the conditions out of which it arises, and see or see the possibility of its ending. To see all, see all three. Even if you can't end it, you can't let go, there's a sense in which, oh yes, there is freedom as a possibility. Adrian last night talked about the five aggregates, <clears throat> seeing their rising and passing. 
If you read the teachings of the Buddha, you'll find that the key insight that the Buddha emphasized in many different ways is the insight into how something co-arises, how something originates and arises, and how something ceases. How the aggregates arise, how sensation arises, a feeling, a perception, formation, consciousness, how it arises. You see it arise, you see it pass away. To see and watch how clinging arises and see how it passes away. To see the arising of the thought, see it pass away. To see the arising of the sun, and the sun passes away. See the arising of an hour of meditation comes, comes to an end. To see the arising of an in-breath, and see it passes away. To see the arising of a feeling, see it pass away. To see an arising of a perception, and to see it pass away. To see the arising of suffering, and see the cessation of that suffering. The Four Noble Truths is a particular expression of this key insight of seeing the rising of things and the passing away. And one of the reasons why this is so important to be present, really present for experience, see the arising and passing away of things, is when you see that things arise and pass, then we know that everything is in process. Everything is moving. That nothing has to stay, nothing's fixed, there's no things. The mind is not a thing, the heart is not a thing, you're not a thing, your suffering is not a thing. It's all process, and the process can move, or it can get frozen. I think of um, resentment as frozen anger. Or if you use the vocabulary of Charlie Brown, bad grief is frozen good grief. And so part of what we're doing in practice is to bring attention, loving attention, to the immediacy of our experience, whatever it might be, and let some of that frozen quality thaw in the light of our kind attention. So there's, there's suffering, noble suffering, or the suffering that the nobles want, noble ones see. And that arises together with clinging. In fact, clinging arises so intimately with suffering that it's the condition that's required in order for suffering to arise as well. And I like to re- restate the Four Noble Truths this way. If you cling, you will suffer. If you let go of that clinging, that suffering disappears. If you cling, you will suffer. The other thing about the Four Noble Truths is that the word to call the first one, dukkha, suffering, works most of the time, but it doesn't work all the time. And some people like to translate it as stress, because there are some situations, especially like in deep meditation, where it doesn't make sense to talk about there being suffering there. 
But there might, it does make sense to talk sometimes about subtle sense of stress or pressure or tension. A little subtle sense of solidity that might still be there, a little wavering that might be there. And so stress better represents that than the word suffering. So in deep meditation sometimes, to meet the Four Noble Truths is to meet that subtle wavering um, tension or pressure or sense of stress that still might linger, even in the stillest of places. So the idea of a path. There's a Zen story of a monastery where when the new monks and nuns would go to the abbot, say, we've been here for a while now. When are you going to teach us about the path? So the abbot would nod, oh, okay, it gets its time. Come with me. And you take one of them, at, one at a time, you take them into a back corner of the garden where people generally never went. And there in the back corner of the garden, he'd point out there's a little path in amongst the woods and the bushes. And he pointed to the path and he said, you should take that walkway, follow that walkway, and you'll find the path. And um, then he'd leave them, they'd walk off and they'd start walking down, usually pretty eager, wow, must be some great teaching down here at the end of this pathway. Maybe it's the library. And um, they would go around the bend, and looming up in front of them suddenly was a huge, would be a huge mirror. And, it, <laughs> and what do you see when you face a mirror? You see yourself. So most of the monks were quick-witted, nuns were quick-witted enough to realize, oh, the joke's on me. That's where the path is found, here. You don't go looking for the path outside. One of the well-kept secrets is that um, Spirit Rock does not have the Buddhist path. It doesn't exist here. I mean, people have looked for a long time up in the hills, they go in the walking hall down below, they go to the bookstore, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they come to Dharma talks, you know, looking for that path. It doesn't exist. Path is not something that exists in a place. The path is found in you, in your heart, in yourself, in your practice. That's where it's found. So, the, you know, some of the monks would laugh when they see the big mirror. And they stood there. And some would be perplexed. And some would squint their eyes and say, I don't recognize that person there. And they'd have to spend a long time looking, studying, who's that person? Sometimes the image they'd see was you know, a 10-year-old or a 19-year-old, and they were 40. They'd look at that, oh, that's me. Or sometimes they'd look at the mirror and they'd be distracted by a crowd of people that surrounded their reflection, their mother and their father and friends and colleagues. And they would turn, look over, look, the person would look over their shoulder to see if anybody else was there. No one would be there. 
except there's all these people in the mirror. So they'd study those people for a while. Sometimes the monks or nuns would look at the reflection of themselves. That's the path. And they would collapse in hopeless despair. Not me, not that. I couldn't do that. Others would look and say, yes, I'm the path. I knew it. <laughs> and they would get stuck and they'd stay there for days admir- <laughs> admiring themselves. <laughs> and some would look at the reflection and get frightened by what they saw. And they'd run back to see if there might be a better path or another path. And maybe I took the wrong turn. Go back. And no, and they retraced their steps and then walk again. And they always came to the mirror. Boom. Always the mirror. And some would um, say, oh, you know, this mirror is standing in my way. I think what I'll do is I'll just kind of plunge into the bushes and the trees on the side and get around it, walk around it. But they wouldn't get more than a foot or two before they had to come back out to the path, all bloodied by the thorns. That didn't work. Sooner or later, all the monks and nuns would have to stand there and look. Just look. Honestly look at what they saw. Look at themselves. Tremendous honesty. Just be there. Some would get really upset by what they saw, angry at what they saw, and they'd take hammers and they would try to break the mirror. But the mirror is indestructible. So that didn't work either. So again, okay, I guess finally, they have took a while for someone to finally just, okay, just be there with the mirror, just be there with the reflection and see it. Just be there. And then, Present, not running away, not attacking, not collapsing, not bypassing, not admiring, not celebrating, just standing there, present for what's there. The monks and nuns would lift up their hand and gently push the, door, the, push the mirror, and there was a door that swung open. gave way. And then the path continued and they could walk past. And there on the other side was the abbot waiting for them with two garden shovels. Okay, it's time to get to work. To break through the illusion of self, the mystery of self, the self-identification requires us to be very honest about what's here. And to have break through it, to see through it, to see how it's constructed, to see the arising of self and the seizing of self. Just even temporarily, for a moment, you say, oh, 
This whole self-notion I have, this whole self-identification I have, is a constructed phenomenon. It arises and it passes. It's, you can, sometimes you can see it in easy ways, and sometimes you can see it in very... It's hard, very, sometimes very hard to see how this works. Some of you might have your favorite seat in the dining hall. And it's probably, you, know, you can't come the first day here. And if you're very mindful, you can see the arising of the idea, oh, this is my seat. Maybe the first time you sat there the one day, the next day you came back and saw that seat was empty. And you see, oh, I think that's basically mine. And if no one disturbs it for the month, then perhaps if you're very attentive, you can see actually that idea, a sense of fades away, of mine, falls away. Or my walking path, I got there first, this is mine. There are all kinds of ways in which we, me, myself, and my, we create that, oh, look at that, there's a meing. We're standing really straight when we do walking meditation, straighter than usual, the energy is going really well. And what arises, I'm a really good walking meditator. So you're rising of identity, of you. And if you're lucky, you'll see that fade away. So I'm trying to, some of these things are pretty easy to see. When I went to Japan and practiced in the Zen monastery there, I was the only um, Westerner there. I grew up in a Western culture. There was a 36 Japanese monks. And every morning we did this intensive soji, this intensive 15 minute, 20 minutes of cleaning of the temple. And it was, you had to be all out, work really hard. And um, it didn't matter if something was clean or not, you cleaned it anyway. It was clean, 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 very vigorously. And so it was kind of a fun ritual for a young person to do. And um, I did it for a couple of months. And then one day, to, you do it together with all the other monks, kind of everybody's court, kind of working together, kind of. And one day I woke up, felt like I remember waking up, and I realized that I was living in a different social universe than the Japanese monks. The Japanese monks were living in a social universe where they, they were all elements of a single unit, the group. I was operating as an independent unit among an independent an individual, individual unit, in amongst other individual units. The Japanese monks had a social sense, their sense of self was completely intimately tied to their group social identity. That's how they saw themselves, as a part of a group. I saw myself as an individual independent of the group. I didn't think that one was better than the other, but I realized in that moment how deeply my Western conditioning had shaped who I, thought, who I think I am. The idea of being an independent individual, which is so highly esteemed here in the West, can be so deeply embedded in our worldview, we don't even see it as a cultural conditioning. We don't see how it arises. But when I was raising my son, I was cued into this, 
And I could see when he was two and three and four years old how I was passing on the values of being an individual to him as opposed to being a unit of a family, you know, part of a family unit in a way that they are sometimes in Japan and other countries. So, they, you know, the arising. When we sit and practice and are really, really still in meditation, the mind is really still, sometimes you can watch the functioning of the mind in very subtle ways, this, this conditioning. You can even watch the arising of the very sense of, oh, I'm, I'm an individual. I'm unique, I'm, I'm, a, I'm separate from everything else. The idea of being, I'm separate from everything else, is part of the constructive activity, the mental formations of the mind. So, those times when it falls away gives us an, uh, a, a, a vision of the possibility of it falling away and then a higher sensitivity to when it arises or how clinging to self occurs. And part of the insight of an awakened person is to see, understand, how the clinging to self comes into being. And a lot of the work, after an initial experience of freedom, a lot of the work is not to dwell in spiritual retirement, but to actually begin looking honestly, really honestly, at noble suffering, noble origination of suffering, and the noble cessation of suffering. That's the mature work of an awakened person. It's to be very, very honest. So, in retrospect, or that's also the work before we get awakened. Isn't that great? <laughs> Before and after. We're supposed to be honest and show up and be present for what's here. This before and after, I think, is significant in many ways. So the idea of a path, walking a path, I'm thinking of two ways of walking a path, beautiful forest path, perhaps. One way is to focus on the destination, where you're going to get to, where you're going to go, you know, where you have to get to. And uh, the important thing is to get to the destination. So in that case, maybe walking fast is important, or taking the shortcuts is important. Just you know, paying you know, paying attention to the path isn't only important to the degree that you find your way, but the destination is the point. Another way of walking the path is to not walk to get anywhere, but just to enjoy the walk, to enjoy the forest, the view, and what's there, and walk, enjoy the process. In Buddhism, Buddhist, the Buddhist path is sometimes, by different teachers, depicted from these two points of view. There are some who emphasize a goal to be attained. And the faster, the better. Shortcuts are good. Others who, who focus more on the process and the enjoyment of each step along the way. If we focus too much on the goal, 
sometimes we don't, aren't, don't enjoy our life. If we enjoy each step along the way, sometimes we don't see the goal. So there's a way in which we, uh, that's uh, really beautiful, I think, is to combine the two, have a sense of both. That each moment of mindfulness is significant moment. No moment of mindfulness is ever wasted. Each moment of mindfulness has something valuable and precious about it. Just that having done that moment was worth it. And mindfulness is onward leading to a goal of freedom, of liberation, of awakening. But one way to kind of bring these two opposites or two different, reconcile these two different approaches is to have a, understand that the goal of freedom or awakening can be reflected in the means, in the path. So what I mean here is that if you want to be generous, practice generosity. If you want to be peaceful, practice peace. If you want to be kind, practice kindness. If you want to be free, practice freedom. The very goal can be found each moment as we go along. So we, we walk the path, and to be awake, which is the goal, how is that reflected? How is that found here? Can I be awake to what's happening here? And I love the word awake. Sometimes I prefer it to the word mindfulness, because mindfulness can seem like a lot of work, right? Got to kind of bear down and focus. And, but awake has kind of clarity to it. Awake doesn't imply anything has to happen. Awake doesn't try to change anything. Is that I'm awake to what's here. Sometimes I, so I prefer in my own practice sometimes to think, oh, how do I wake up to what's here? What is it to be awake right now? What is it to be awake to? As opposed to what is to be, what, what, what to be mindful of right now. So to be awake here. And as we do that, as we walk the path, we start becoming awake to what is here as we walk the path. And one of the things we become aware of is all the times that we're in the past, thinking about remembering the past, all the times we're thinking about the future. And you can kind of feel, you can see, part of the function of wisdom is to see, oh, that's not useful to spend so much time thinking about the past. There's another option. It's more useful to be present to wake up to what's here. It's not useful to spend so much time planning the future. Maybe I can't let go of the planning, but can I be awake to planning? Here and now is a person thinking about the future. That's all you're asked to do. That's to be awake. Oh, here and now, a person thinking about the past. Here and now, someone having fantasy. Be awake to that. So then, to be awake to that also brings us back into the present, into walking the path. Here we are. 
And then, and then we start paying more careful attention to what's here. Be more awake to what's here. And you might notice that there's a lot of judgments or criticism or a lot of aversion, a lot of desire, even in relationship to what's happening here. And it's possible to see how that gets in the way of being awake. That gets those things create more suffering. See the suffering of it. Oh, look at that, I'm suffering. And so then it takes a while of contending and looking and being very honest about that. The, um, So as we wake up, we stay present, part of the function of mindfulness is to begin showing us what's operating here, what's going on here for us, how our minds, our hearts, our feelings work, what the backlog of karma is for us that has to be experienced and seen and recognized. It's not an easy process to meet ourselves, to look in the mirror and see ourselves well. But we see ourselves, and we start simplifying in the process. The second step of the Eightfold Path is right intention or right attitude. I like to think of it as having the, having the right luggage. Imagine you're going down, going to hike into the forest, going on a long hike someplace, and you bring with you four suitcases, a backpack, and a wheelbarrow of power bars, just in case. (laughs) You know, you're not going to get very far, very quickly. You're going to be weighed down. There has to be some shedding, some letting go, simplifying, in order to follow that path. So the right attitude, the right intention, is to begin finding that attitude and that way of being that simplifies our experience. And one of the right intentions is the intention of letting go, of renunciation. Because you can't take a lot of baggage with you, even good baggage, if you want to walk the path. So there's a kind of simplification process, just here. And one of the great uh, values of a long retreat like this, it helps a little bit, not a lot, but it helps a little bit with the simplification. We kind of forget a lot of things, a lot of concerns and preoccupations. So it's easier just just be here. Because here is so important. Here is where it's at. Here is where the path is found. If you want to find the path, the path is found here. It's not found tomorrow. It's not found yesterday. This is the only place it can be found. So we begin discovering what goes on here. And as we get closer and closer to here, we start seeing more and more also how, how we are relating to here. I'm judging it, I'm for it, I'm against it, I want something different. I'm looking for another path. I don't, you know, it's all this little, all this kind of movements of activity that keeps us a little bit restless, a little bit kind of active, that keeps us from just fully walking. I don't know if you've ever done something like a running practice. When I was younger, I used to run. 
And remember, the first 300 yards, I hated it. And there was all this resistance and judgments and thoughts about better things to do. And, and then I'd just, I'd just keep doing it and get into it. And then I'd enter into the, into the activity of just running. And so much would fall away and just be running. Just after all, just running, just running. So just to walk the path, just to walk, walk, just to just, just really wholeheartedly put your surrender to it, just walk, just be there and be there, be there. It takes a while. There's a lot of simplification letting go that happens in that process. So that we become more settled here. And the last step of the Eightfold Path is right concentration, which I like to call right composure, to be composed here. And I like the word composed because concentration is not a good translation for samadhi. And it suggests the idea, concentration suggests kind of this one-pointedness, kind of laser focus, mental kind of thing. Whereas composure in my vocabulary is a physical phenomena, a whole being, a whole being settles. Let's settle around the breath, compose ourselves around the breath, compose ourselves around the knee that's hurting, compose ourselves around our anxiety, compose ourselves around this agitated mind. Just be there, composed, hold it, be present. So this simplification, this entering into it, one more willingness just to be fully there, engaged, so that past and future are forgotten, so that ideas of self, how am I doing, am I doing well enough, am I getting anything out of this, fall away, because you're just there, doing it. Step after step, just doing it, moment after moment, mindful step after mindful step, just here doing it. So entering into it. And then the wonderful thing about the path, the Buddhist path, is that actually it doesn't have a destination, even though teachers will talk about a destination. Or the destination is not a place. You can't get to it. That's disappointing, right? Now you find out. <laughs> it's not so you have to walk, you have to walk the path. But if you think that walking the path, that up ahead, around the bend, you'll find the, the goal, it doesn't work that way. Where it works is you walk the path. You, you walk and you freely walk, you really enter into the process of walking, into the process of being present and being mindful and being really here with this experience. And as you settle and get calmer about this experience, it's easier to see the subtlety, the, the, the immediacy of just this. The immediacy, this, the, 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 the small little movements, the small sub-movements are arising and passing. Just here. And, and it gets so involved sometimes, not, not often, but occasionally, so involved, so connected, so simplified, so willing just to let go of self-concern and self-measurement and self-criticism and needing to apologize or needing to defend or be ashamed or whatever, just let go, just, just enter into the process here fully. That in that process, the simpler and simpler and simpler, 
that there's le- realizing, oh, here's where I'm clinging still. Here's where I'm holding on to something. I'm trying too hard. So we let go. Let go of the places where we hold, where we cling. Till finally we just become the walking so fully that the walker disappears. And you could say that's the goal, but the walker doesn't know it. At some point, the walker comes back. And then the walker comes back on the path and then keeps walking to do the work of some more. Just do the work and walk and be mindful and wake up and look at where we cling. With a greater love and commitment to being honest and facing ourselves and seeing what's here. What did you experience when you became awakened? How amazingly egotistical I am. Yeah, that's the good news, that I see it, and, I, I, and I'm starting the process now of facing it and freeing myself of it, not believing it. And then maybe you're lucky again and you be, the walker disappears. And then you f- come back to the, you're on the path and you just keep walking. And you look, look around and there's other people walking on paths next to you. And they're walking. And we're all walking. We're all walking together. We're all in it together. Doesn't matter if we just started the path We've been doing it for a long time. If there's a path, we walk. And we walk completely. We, or we try to. We enter the, enter the path. We become the path. And becoming the path, the path disappears. And you disappear. And then you reappear. See the arising, and we see the falling away. See the cessation. See the arising and falling. And we really see how things arise, even something as deep and profound as our sense idea of self. Then hopefully, we'll see that we don't have to take the selfing so seriously. We can hold it much more lightly. Hold ourselves lightly. Hold ourselves with love and care and compassion as we keep walking. As long as you're, you're there, as long as you're around, you walk the path. A path of no end. Except for when you end.
So I'd like to end with an, another of these Zen stories, if I may. There was a nun who had been a senior teacher in the monastery for many, many years, trained many of the monks and nuns. And when she got old, she retired and she went deep into the mountains to a little hermitage, three days hike from the monastery. But so many people knew about her wisdom that many people would do the three-day hike to find her, ask her advice about their life and their situation. And she was renowned for always knowing exactly what to tell people. She had this knack to always be able to tell people what they needed to hear, just the right advice. So people would do the three-day hike up the mountains to find her, get their advice, and walk three days out. When they came out, they'd all say, yes, she knew exactly what to say to me. So the thing was that when you got there, she would listen, really listen and find out who you were and what your story and your situation was and take the time to be with you. And then she would say, well, I'll give you advice, but you have to promise not to tell anyone (laughs) what the advice is. And the reason she had made them promise was she always said the same thing to everyone. <laughs> and inevitably, when they first heard it, they were dis- everyone was disappointed. But in the three days it took to hike out, <laughs> by the time they got out, that, oh, she had just the right advice for me. So what she said to everyone, She said, what is it you are not paying attention to? So I'll give you three days (laughs) (laughs) to find out how that's the right advice for you. So let's begin with a little quiet and sitting.
So the point is not to walk to get someplace, but the point is to walk fully. (coughs) The point is not to be mindful to get somewhere, but to be fully mindful, to enter into the practice, to give yourself over to the practice. It's best not to look for something else beyond the practice. Enter the world through your practice and you will be the path. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.